like to contact the show, send us an email at liveonfourlegspodcast at gmail.com or get involved in the conversation on social media. Join the Pearl Jam Podcast community group on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at liveonfourlegspod. Hey, I'm going to throw out a suggestion as part of uh, the experiment, something we've never attempted. If you'd like to all sit down again in the, uh, the guise of conserving energy, please feel free to do so. It might be, we haven't played for a seated crowd in a long, long time. It might be kind of exciting. There's not going to be an acoustic version of Blood or anything like that, so feel free to sit down. And away we go. You're listening to Live on Four Legs, the live Pearl Jam podcast experience featuring... Mr. Stone Gossett. Fucking Cameron in the truck. everybody now welcome to live on four legs a definitive live pearl jam podcast and today is the final episode in the mansfield experiment trilogy series that we've been doing the last couple weeks and boy it's been so much fun going back to these shows and just kind of seeing how the band structured and worked with these songs and see what they held off for certain moments see what they held off for the big show which we're talking about today night three And there's so much of this that needs to be discussed because it, for the time, was something completely unique. And it's still something completely unique. But as far as, like, acoustic sets go, this is something that they bring in every now and again in the future of Pearl Jam. And, like, two years after this, you'd see it at the Gorge. And then you'd see it a couple other times here and there. And I know they did it in Red Rocks back in 1995, but I think after this, it was kind of seen as one of these big special things that could happen at a Pearl Jam show. So we'll get into that. We'll also get into a little bit of, this was eight days later and a lot had happened in that eight days. They went to a lot of places. They made for a lot of amazing moments yet again. It's just what they did in 2003 and what they do normally. And then after that, I think we're going to just read all your stories and we're going to get into a 45 song set list because once you get into that many songs, it is a lot. So let's not waste any more time here. Randy Sobel over here, John Farrar over there. Hello, hello. 
Well, yep. it's about that time. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned them doing this a few years later. I mean, you can also see this as kind of like a prequel to stuff like Ben Roya. They did it in Santa Barbara later this year. So it was not too far before they busted out some acoustic stuff again. Like this was kind of a little run of acoustic shows here to end the year. Yeah, and I think that this show definitely starts all that and is the trigger to all that. And some of these songs that they're going to do in the show will come back and be at Benaroy and will be at Santa Barbara and a couple of those other shows. But then they start to get to play around with it a little bit more. And even to what we know that happened last year where the four or five song opener set essentially was all acoustic sit-down stuff. Like, I don't think you even get them thinking about it without the Mansfield show. And, and again, I know that Red Rocks was kind of its own thing in its own time, but I still think that everything after this revolves around what happens here. Yeah, Red Rocks was definitely more of a one-off thing. They didn't follow that up with anything like immediately after like they did with this one. Like you saw two later in the year and then like said on and on to 2005 and up to last year. So this is kind of an important show. It's kind of the understatement of the day, but this is one that a lot of people have been waiting on and it's going to be fun to go through. And before we get into the whole entire set list, like this is not the only important thing that happened this week in Pearl Jam touring. Now, once you follow up those Mansfield shows on the 2nd and the 3rd, they head on over to Camden, and they do two shows at Camden on the 5th and on the 6th. And from what I recall about the 5th, it's been a while since I listened to the 6th, but the 5th has a pretty important moment in it, and that is them kind of calling an audible in the middle of a set when they see fireworks in the background. They're like, okay, well, we might as well do a little tribute to America. It was the day after the 4th of July, and they decided to play Rockin' in the Free World right there in the middle of the set, which is one of the weirdest and rare and kind of cool things that they've ever done with the song. Albeit, it was the opener for a show last year, which was also kind of crazy in its own right. But then after those shows, you get right to the MSG shows. And those MSG shows, especially night one, we all know what happens. They create one of the best concert DVDs of all time with special guests and insane performances that are unforgettable that people still talk about to this day that I think will be be Pearl Jam's lasting legacy along with this show. So we kind of touched up on it a little bit on the first episode, but this is really one of Pearl Jam's best weeks that they've ever had. Yeah, I mean, definitely in the 2000s. You know, always go to that two weeks in 1994 or whatever. There was so much happening, but this is all just show-based. Like, there wasn't anything extracurricular going on. There wasn't any distractions going on. This is just, let's go play six, seven, eight of the best shows we've ever played. And it all happened to be in this little 10-day period here. Yeah, it's, it's very, very interesting. And a lot of people hold this week of shows in very, very high regard for good reason. Yeah, and now kind of dig into the experiment a little bit. And we're going to tell stories in, in just two seconds or so. But... Ed says in the first show, he says that they have around like 100 songs that they got to get to. And when you look at the first two nights, I believe total of those two shows was a little less than 60. I think it was like 58 or 59, something around those lines. So when you're thinking about that and you're thinking about what they could do and how much they could do in Mansfield, it sort of gets on your mind like, okay, if they go on at nine and have to go on at 11, this isn't going to work. So 
they decide that they're just going to do this preset, which we'll learn in the stories that are being told was actually pre-planned and found out at the MSG shows that they were going to do this. And they do the acoustic set that started, I believe, at 5.30 in the afternoon, which is kind of like unprecedented in a way, because I don't remember the last time they ever did a set at 5.30. The afternoon thing is interesting. Like, yes, I remember there being some doubt as to whether they were going to be able to pull this off. And then you hear that, like, okay, they're going to come out before Sleater Kinney and play a set. going to be acoustic, like everybody show up early. But... Why don't they do this more? Like, why can't Pearl Jam go play it at five o'clock, six o'clock? I would love to go see Pearl Jam in the afternoon. Like, that would be incredible. I know it won't happen because that's just not the way things are done. But I would love to go see them at like one o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday. That would be incredible. Yeah, Pearl Jam in the sunlight. Yeah. And I know that this show was sort of overcast, while the other two shows were apparently like beautiful weather. For early summer, this one had rained earlier in the day, so it wasn't like the picturesque view of what you want an outdoor concert at five o'clock in the afternoon being. But I would love to see that too. I really would love to see that too. It'd be easier on his voice, like not having to wait until nine, ten o'clock to play. Like, yeah, get in there early. Yeah, matinee shows. Let's do it. I like that idea. I like that idea. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into some of you guys' stories a little bit. If your story, if you submitted one and it didn't get told on the first two episodes, well, you don't have to wait too long. And the first one we're going to tell is from our good buddy, the founder, the developer of LiveFootsteps.org, one of the great things that makes this podcast sound smart, helps us out with all those little statistics and all that, and Dave has done a tremendous job. Look out for some cool things that Dave and I will be presenting very, very soon, I hope. But this was Dave's first show, so let's get to talking about it a little bit. Back in 2003, the Tweeter Center, a.k.a. Great Woods, was my favorite venue where my brother and I attended shows for other bands. We also loved tailgating before the shows, and then sometimes after the shows while waiting out the traffic. Before this show, we weren't big into the Pearl Jam forums at the time, and smartphones weren't a thing yet, so we were taken a bit by surprise by the acoustic set. We slowly made it into the venue with a small group of fans who were in on the preset. We got through security, a few songs into the preset, and made our way out to the middle of the lawn. I just remembered loving the preset, and at the time, I wasn't all that familiar with Binaural or Riot Act, and Lost Dogs were still a few months away. I hadn't listened to other Pearl Jam boots. I mostly listened to a lot of classic rock in the late 90s and didn't know much of the Pearl Jam catalog after No Code. But I was blown away by what I was witnessing. It didn't matter if I hadn't previously binged on these songs. I was hooked again on Pearl Jam. I was an 11-year-old kid again. I vowed then that at any time they toured New England, we'd get tickets. I've relived this show hundreds of times listening to the bootleg, and with my collection of boots, I still think that this 2003 tour, and specifically this show, is the best recording and mix, but I may be biased. There's so much more to this show that I can talk about, and I'm sure others have plenty of other stories as well, but I can't sign off without sharing a few stats on this historic date. This is the show with the most songs played of all time, with 45, second place next to this show, is the Spectrum Night 4 show, which I I think there are some 
interesting connections in with the spectrum in this show, which I don't know if we'll end up getting into, but it is interesting to think about. This is the longest preset as well, with second place coming at the Gorge, where they did nine songs. This one, they do 12. See, I would argue that it's really 47 songs, because if you look on Live Footsteps, he doesn't count the one, one note. note as a song, and they do it twice. Yeah. 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 If you're going to nitpick. If they actually covered the Descendants, I'd, I'd, I'd add yeah, it. If he, had, if he had said all in there, then yeah. Seven songs from Riot Act. The experiment was the last time they played that many from the record in one show. Six songs from Binaural. Other than Toronto in 2016, with Binaural being played in full, this is the last time that this many were played from that record. I think that's no surprise to anybody. Together, there have never been as many Riot Act and Binaural songs played at the same show. In this one, there are 13. Yield Tonight was the last time so many have been played, not counting Milwaukee in 2014. There were six. This is the last night outside of Yield in Milwaukee that six Yield songs were played. That's that's wild. Yeah, that's wild. And I know that they have played at least five other times because I I remember seeing those set lists. So. Yeah. Lost Dogs, this was the first time five songs from Lost Dogs were played together in one show. That's interesting. This is also the second to last time that Ark was played out of the nine that they played in dedication to the nine lives lost at Roskilde. So, great stats. I don't know anybody else that can give us the stats like he does. So, hey, Dave, thank you for everything you do, man. Great story. Yeah. We've got one here from... Hallucinogenic Recipe co-host Brian Horowitz, who went to all three shows, he says, I found out about the third night preset while I was in New York City for the MSG shows. My buddy called to tell me he had just heard it announced on WBCN. There I was about to catch my first MSG show and Pearl Jam announced a special preset in three days, which was set to be my last of seven shows that year. I was absolutely ecstatic. I vividly remember how nice the weather was for the experiment. We got to our seats nice and early, and when Pearl Jam came on for the acoustic set, I swear the place was like a third full. It started to fill in as the set progressed, of course, and between the weather, the sparse crowd, and our great seats upgrades the day of. The preset was just stunning. Thanks, Brian. Then we've got one here from Brian Cohen, who also went to Just Night 3. He says, Of the experiment, I've told this story a few times, how I missed the acoustic set. I used to be ashamed of it, but now I embrace it. I've never been big on the Pearl Jam message boards or groups, and what's funny is, I did hear that they were going to try and play every song, and I do remember looking up the set list from nights one and two to guess what we'd get, but somehow the detail escaped me. I was going up I-295 just outside of Providence when my buddy who was already there called to tell me they were on stage and I needed to get there as soon as possible. I was freaking out. Pearl Jam had been one of my favorite bands since 1992, and this was my first time seeing them. I was 12 then, and now 23, missing my favorite. We got to the venue and heard a loud roar, but it was too late. It was over. A -a once-in-a-lifetime event, Pearl Jam acoustic preset. As upset as I was, that all went away when Eddie walked on stage and Matt started the drums for Can't Keep. I was in awe the rest of the night. My first time seeing Black Live is something I'll never forget. Along with Drummer Christ, the Man Trilogy, Breath, it was epic. This was my first ever Pearl Jam show, and when I tell fellow Pearl Jam nerds that this was my first show, they always ask, how awesome was that acoustic set? I used to just say, it was great, but now I say that I missed it. It's my Pearl Jam history, and we all take the bad with the good. 
Yeah, after 20 years. Come, you to, know. come to terms with it. Right. And yeah. honestly, some of those stories sometimes just make for better stories. Because you can just be like everybody else and say, oh, that was great. I love this song. I love that song. But no, now people are going to listen to your story. And actually, they just had. So yep. thanks so much, Brian, for, sure. for sharing that. Thanks for being honest. All right. I'm going to do one. This is Greg Burns Mickelson. If you remember that name, he requested an episode earlier this year that kind of kicked off the whole 2003 run for us. So this is going full circle a little bit because we did a show from early in that Australian tour out of Sydney, which is where Greg is from. And we did his request on that. And then he ended up going to the States. I believe he went to the MSG show, which I'll talk about here. And he went to this one too. So Here's Greg's story. This will be interesting, coming all the way from Australia for this. As told earlier this year, I attended all three Sydney shows in February and then threatened to travel to Japan in a vain attempt to meet the band. Sanity prevailed momentarily. I followed the setlist threads for the Japan tour and the first U.S. leg on the official forums and knew that if I wanted to see deeper cuts and more lively crowds, I would have to travel. The groundswell for the MSG shows was too hard to ignore. I come across a ticket through the forum, and wheels are in motion. I booked tickets to Foo Fighters in Boston on the 5th, and I've got MSG Night 1 ticket and bought a ticket for Night 3 in Mansfield. I flew from Sydney to Los Angeles, Los Angeles to New York, and up to Boston, which accumulates to 26 hours of travel time. On the 4th of July, I could hear the Boston Pops fireworks, but I couldn't muster the energy to get out there. My first stop was to see the Foo Fighters at Fleet Pavilion on the 5th, supported by Pete Yorn, who I was sure would never tour Australia, then down to MSG for night one. I arrive in New York and meet up with James from the forums at a pizzeria next to the garden, and we take the guided tour, hoping to catch them setting up or sound check. No luck. Everything was just about in place and no band members to be seen. They play Low Light, which is my favorite song, and also one of the rarest of the time. That's crazy. I'm in tears, so my trip is justified. I go back for night two, I buy a scalp ticket for quote-unquote face value, which of course doesn't scan, and then a second floor ticket for a little bit more than face value. Rocking in the free world on the floor, party atmosphere, was well worth it. Successful New York trip. Hotel internet being what it was at the time, I logged into the forum and briefly noticed that the band was planning on not doubling up on any song over the three nights. What treasures lie in store for night three? I fly back up to Boston on the 10th and try to figure out how to get from Boston to Mansfield. The obvious and cheapest answer is the train. I catch the South Station train to Mansfield and walk the hour down to the Tweeter Center. No GPS, no map. I made it well in advance to pick up my ticket, doors open, and I'm looking forward to seeing Slater Kinney again. But hold on, that's Pearl Jam's taking the stage. It's not just Eddie doing a couple of acoustic songs, it's the whole band. But the sun is still up. What sort of magic realm have I walked into? Of the girl, all those yesterdays, sleight of hand, parting ways. Unbelievable. Slater Kinney rocked, and I had picked up one beat, which is a Slater Kinney record, while I was in New York. Pearl Jam came back on. Breaker Fall, Nothing As It Seems, one of my other all-time favorites. The Man Trilogy, Blood, Encore Break. Just let me breathe. Nope, we got... Breath, habit, mankind, you. Yes, please. This night is unreal. Then, Eddie comes out alone for Encore 2 and starts singing Ark. All the air is sucked out of me as layers of Eddie's voice fill the amphitheater. 
The meaning of the song and being in the audience for one of the nine performances will never be lost on me. The rest of the night is a blur until the show ends and I'm in the car park, thumbing my way back to Boston. Tour buses roll out, cars pile out, nothing. I'll do this one myself. A $100 plus taxi ride later and this unreal experience of a lifetime is over. I fly back to Sydney a couple days later with souvenirs from my trip and the shows, but my bag never comes home. Luckily, I had the posters from both shows in a tube on my person. Well, sometimes, yeah, sometimes you just, you have to sacrifice, you know, like you have an amazing experience going to all the shows in the U.S. that you did. Like the bag is the sacrifice and somewhere in it, is it all worth it? Like, I think a hundred times out of a hundred, you got to say yes, right? Yeah, for sure. And also how cool is it to hear, like Pete talked about listening to ARC and like, this is another one where we don't have that performance. So it was cool to hear a little bit of detail on that. All right. We've got one here from Brad Reddick from Wilmington Wrightsville Beach, North Carolina, a place I've been a few times. He says, I was at the time in management for a pharmaceutical company. I would schedule my work with reps close to where Pearl Jam was playing in 2003 to catch as many shows as possible. I was married on January 11th, 2003 and talked to my now ex-wife. Uh, well, going to ask how it went but to fly from orlando where we resided to boston to celebrate our six-month anniversary on july 11th 2003 i was working quote unquote the northeast following pearl jam on the company dime and wanted to see that third show my wife flew up from florida we caught the night three show and two days later in logan airport she said she wanted a divorce because i loved pearl jam more than i loved her what? i didn't argue that not long after we were divorced. I still love Pearl Jam more than just about anything else in this world and have continued to follow them around the world to catch them live with no new wife. Man, buried the lead on that one, Brad. That that took a a turn. But hey, you know, you you love what you love. It seems like he seems like he's he's all right with it. So more power to you. Someday we'll have to do an episode of finding a significant other and them kind of being brought into this world where yeah it like alongside your wife like pearl jam is a a a significant portion of your life and it's like do they embrace that because they see how much you love that or do they say i can't handle something like that and does it hurt the relationship i think that that would be a very interesting i don't know like radiotherapy type thing to do because and a lot of people that have been caught in some trouble with that but i know a lot of people that have been gifted to have significant others and spouses that have just said this is your thing go do your thing and it's healthy to have a thing i will say that so unfortunately for brad doesn't seem like his 20 years of ex-wife thinks the same way but hey Look, we we should set Brad up with somebody in the Pearl Jam community, right? Like we we could do that for him, right? Hey, I, I, if you want to take that, this, this is not going to be that kind of podcast. But if anybody out there is interested, I'm sure we we could give you Brad's email. <laughs> but I'm I'm going to leave it at that. Well, at least it made for an interesting conversation topic. So thanks again, Brad. 
All right. Last one we have here is from another great friend of ours, Tanya Kang from Newark, Delaware, who went to just this show. Obviously, Tanya does the Pearl Jam fan portraits. If you haven't got a hand on her book yet, it's terrific. I think she's still selling copies. So just go to the website. I think it's just PearlJamFanPortraits.com. And you and I are I both in it, right? We are definitely both in yeah. it. I wrote a forward for it, so I better be yeah. in it. <laughs> but here's her story. She has some great stories. She's been over 100 shows, so there's no lack of stories from her. When they announced the third Mansfield show and that it was going to be a special one, I really wanted to go, but wasn't sure at first if I could make it happen. I had already taken off a lot of work, which was a summer college part-time job, to make several other shows. But if anybody knows me, I always find a way to make it happen. As we neared closer to the date, me and my two friends decided to find tickets, make the eight-hour trek up, eight hours because Northeast Connecticut traffic sucks, not going to disagree with you there, and drive back home right after the shows. Something I could do in my 20s, not now in my 40s. Anyway, we each found individual tickets on Ticketmaster. My seat was far back, but I was in. We drove up and we got to the venue around 2.30. I hung out at the box office for a while waiting for ticket drops and hoping to upgrade my seat. It was a waste of time. The band was starting their early acoustic set and I didn't drive all the way up here to miss that. The opening set was amazing, magical, blissful, indescribable. Even with a crappy seat and the people around me having no idea what was going on, I felt so incredibly lucky to be there and witness what felt like a once in a lifetime set. So many rare songs that rarely get played even to this day. After the opening set, Slater Kinney did their set too and just made me love the night even more. They had easily and quickly become one of my favorite bands from seeing them open for Pearl Jam on that tour. Getting to the main set. I mean, that start. Can't Keep, then two of my favorite songs back-to-back, Breakerful and Brain of Jay. I rarely see that anymore. The Man Trilogy, Ark was absolutely beautiful, They were pulling out all the stops. We drove home with our hearts full, crossing over the bridge from New Jersey into Delaware and seeing the sunrise. This was living life for me. Hitting the road, seeing bands do special shows like this. When Pearl Jam wants to make a show special, they know how to do it. Absolutely well said. I think we are all here because we anticipate that happening. And we respect the fact that they can do it so often so great stories everybody thank you all so much for sharing all that that was fantastic yeah like this is exactly what we were going for when we wanted to cover it when we did because if we wanted to cover it just to cover it we could have covered it in maybe the second month of us doing shows because it was requested going all the way back from day one and I always kind of said well that's important we're not going to do it right away we're going to hold it off for a little bit and I guess episode 239 through 241 was the perfect time to do it so just thank you for everybody for throwing in your stories and being a part of this little experience that we enjoyed so so much well There is a big set list to get to, but before we do, I think we need to hear from Javier because that acoustic set list, it's 12 songs. Nearly all of them are major talking points at the show. What we're going to do here is let him do almost the overture 
of this show and kind of go over a little bit of the pieces that happened and the sound that created some of these songs that they're playing from long roads, all or none to all those yesterdays and everything in between. And he's going to talk about a lot of them. This is going to be very interesting. So let's hear Javier take it away. And then we'll get back and talk about all these same songs ourselves. Hey, Randy. Hey, John. Hey, everyone in the podcast. So final night, the final night of the experiment. And I'm very excited to talk about this because it's kind of rare that you can find an entire acoustic set, even as a preset, and it's not even part of the main set. So a lot of interesting things to talk about specifically for this show. So Pearl Jam has been well known to use Taylor guitars as their main acoustic guitar choice. Later on, you can see Ed using more Martins, 0018s, D18s, Gibson J150, or the J500, I think it is, the ones that sometimes he will use for his own stuff. Mike, Taylor guitars as well, Gibson Hummingbirds, and Stone is the one who has been using Taylor guitars consistently over more than 25 years plus of a career the Pearl Jam has been playing. Just a little side note, though, I know that we have talked about that Gretsch guitar that Stone was using a lot around that time, the one that he uses for black, but actually it is not a Gretsch. It is a National Resonator guitar, Duval Pro, Dove Pro neck P90, that it has a P90 on the neck. So just a little clarification with that one, but we can continue to call it Gretsch guitar and that will be fine. So it's very cool to hear that like the acoustic set is very percussive. It sounds like sometimes the instruments they sound like arps, like they're not even like an acoustic guitar. And it's because of the choice of the EQ that they decided to go for just to take all the brightness away and make the sound very, very mellow and very more friendly and approachable for the audience. Another really cool thing, for example, in a song like All or None, is that we know that Boom is going to be using that B3, right? We know him for that. But in this case, he's using a piano that has been set up for this occasion and something that you can see also in a few recordings at the Benaroya Hall show that is sounds more like a Fender Rhodes piano. This is going to sound a little bit more bluesy. It's going to have a little bit more kind of like it makes the song move a little bit more. You feel like you have more air in the back, which I think is a great add for a song like All or None. And then it complements so well, like the weird tuning that the guitar has, the cable the Stone is using, and Mike is using that Chet Atkins Gretsch, the orange one that he was picking for around that time. Really cool, slow univibe in the back as well. I think it's a wonderful combo that they should use a little more often. But I just wanted to start the conversation this week for all of you guys related to this. It's a very unique occasion, and especially when you are not repeating or trying to not to repeat any songs on your set. But we wanted to kick off with the acoustic set and have like a really good foundation to continue throughout the show. All right. Well, that was a big one to kick us off. So many good talking points, so many good songs to talk about. And really, we could be sitting here and after every single song, we could hear a two to three minute bite from Javier. But this was the way to do it. Just tee us up and we'll follow up everything that we can afterwards. Very good stuff. Thank you and, so uh, much, Javier. And yeah, nice to hear him talking about some acoustic stuff instead of the normal, like, sure. you know, what kind of pedals and what kind of guitars. And, like, it's kind of a different feel. So that was very cool. That's right. Yep. All right. Well, let's get into the show ourselves. 
There's a buzz that fills the air, and Ed's going to dress it right off the bat. All right, the advice we give you, to you is the advice we give to ourselves. Let's pace ourselves. It's going to be a long run. Appreciate you coming down early to participate in the experiment. And after we play uh, this bit here, you're going to have the uh, profound experience of getting to witness Slater Kinney play in between. And then uh, we'll come back and get to the task at hand. First of the 45 songs on this night. The acoustic sound is just lovely in this. And I think the trick is, especially for Long Road, is finding a way to maintain the soaring aspect of these songs that's so prominent on the electric versions. From just about all of these, the thing that's going to get it elevated more times than not is Matt Cameron. And here, you don't really have Matt Cameron pushing that pace. Cameron is more of kind of the fill guy. He's going to do some lighter things. He's just going to kind of fill in some space. And you have to rely on one of the other three guitars to be sort of almost that percussive moment when Stone or when Ed is strumming hard while somebody else is kind of soloing or something like that. That kind of fills in for that almost hard percussive sound there. And it's just tremendous. Really to start it off, like, it sounds pristine in his vocals. It really gets off to where you want to go. Like, we talked about it in the first two episodes, how they picked the right three songs to open every show with. I don't think you can go this show and not have Long Road as that opener. I think it was the perfect choice, and especially for the atmosphere, really worked well. 
Yeah, and going back to what Dave said in his letter, the recording in the mix of this, the acoustic stuff sounds very full and very lush. And like you said, it's easy to do like dynamics. You know, you can do a loud, quiet, loud. When you're playing your electric, you can bring things down. We've seen them do that many, many times in many, many songs. But when you're playing acoustically, it's not as easy to do that because everything just kind of sits at that same level on the acoustic guitar. It's hard to get the same kind of dynamics that you get with like a full electric rock band. But they do manage to do that and i think you mentioned you know cameron being a big driver of that usually but here i think it's really ed's voice i mean this whole thing is just a service i think especially longer i think sounds like said sounds amazing and i think he notices that too and when normally at the end you know he lets go full-throated and like lets it soar here he kind of like brings it back and gets a little quieter at the end and it's a very cool moment long road is the perfect way to start this What's great about all this is though, yes, it's an easier listening setting and it's a different setting. It still gives you that Pearl Jam edge that defines these songs. I think that's probably the best thing that you could say about this set. Of the Girl Follows Up, another one just kind of like Long Road that Electric has a lot of these moments where they become either soaring moments or in this, this is a heavy soloing kind of song. And Mike has to readjust almost in the same way that he readjusts for stuff like the Alive and State of Love and Trust solo on on Unplugged. He's going to do a much more simplified version. It doesn't give you that much of a blues vibe until maybe the last one at the end. It sounded like he was using a slide pick a little bit. But it's interesting because this kind of comes off as a, a little bit more stark. And the normal version, electric, it doesn't have that same sort of feel to it so you're taking something that kind of can get in a good rhythm and get bouncy and you're turning it into almost like something that mike has to figure out how to fill the pieces differently on yeah he's very nimble on this it's hard to play leads and solos on acoustic guitar the action's a little higher and you can't really go off like you can on electric guitar but he really pulls it off nicely. There's a lot of really clear, really nimble fills and, and leads and stuff that he's throwing in. It adds a really cool atmosphere to it. But the thing that stuck out to me on this is Jeff's bass really early on. It, he finds a really unique groove that I don't think I've heard on of the girl before. And it gives it a little bit more of a stark feel and different little bit of a vibe. This is a cool performance as well. I mean, this is one that you don't hear people talk about a lot when they talk about this, but it's one of the best ones, I think. Yeah, I think Long Road is probably because it was the opener, probably takes most of the conversation. Then Sleight of Hand and Footsteps, I think, get a lot of that same, too. All or none, you can probably say the same thing. But yeah, of the girl, maybe not as considered as as the other ones that I just mentioned, but still very, very good and and balances the set very, very nicely. Ed's going to say here, I'm going to throw out a suggestion as part of the experiment. If you'd like to sit down, please feel free to do so. We haven't played for a seated crowd in a very long time, so it might be exciting. There's not going to be an acoustic version of Blood or anything like that, so please feel free to sit down. It's going to get into another one that you usually recognize as an opener, same way that Of The Girl is, at sometimes. And it might not seem like it would be a big deal for this song to be in the acoustic setting, but it is. There's little things that really make a big difference in sound that help really propel the song and it changes up some things that ed has to do and specifically ed is sort of the focal point not just 
vocals, obviously, but I think his guitar in sometimes is always kind of the focal point in this. And we always kind of know that they're always going to build to that moment when they're running it down. Sometimes I know, sometimes all that. And I think that a lot of the strumming patterns define this sound. And I think that all goes into where the push is with the song too, because that's supposed to give you a big push. And in, in moments, because Ed almost feels isolated on this, like the vocals almost feel isolated at times too, which is very cool. But also you have at the end, one of my favorite things that happens is sometimes that like little extra push that comes and just kind of re-kicks the song into gear just a little bit. This is a very, very good version sometimes. Yeah, this is really the only one in the preset that you get a little bit of the intensity in and like it builds a little bit of tension and gets a little angsty like the good versions of sometimes do and it's interesting that that comes right after he gets everyone to sit down and talks about how there's not going to be an acoustic blood and then they go into the one that's that's going to maybe tap into some of that same energy a little bit. up we have another from the no code record and i feel like this song was written to be played in this setting specifically off he goes was terrific at this show i love the tone of the guitars meshing really well together in this they feel like they're harmonizing like voices in this that sounds very very cool Mike Staccato's strumming on here is very cool it's not usually utilized within like very folky renditions but here the staccato strumming is not like a folky type thing that you would hear in folk songs but here it kind of fits perfectly i don't know how to really explain the balance of that but somehow what he's doing is really working well and i thought that off he goes even had a push at the end here too like it had a ton of character within its storytelling i thought this is a, a tremendous version and and maybe possibly one of my top three moments out of this set two no code out of the first four you can't go wrong with that yeah i love off he goes it's always going to be in my top 10 of pearl jam songs and yeah this is the perfect setting for it i thought this was yeah again an excellent version stone especially i thought sounded excellent like just keeping that pace and keeping that rhythm of it going is excellent before his first death he is off
that's really the rare portion of this. The next two songs are going to be the rarest of the bunch. And the first one's going to be the dramatic return of all those yesterdays. Don't you think you ought to rest? Don't you all lay your head down Don't you think you wanna sleep Don't I think you wanna lay your head down First time you're getting it since October of 1998. That would be 156 shows. But it seems like this, at first for a while, wasn't destined to be a song for the Cameron era. And this experiment overall, what it accomplishes is that these Yield songs were able to make triumphant returns and become big part of the set list. Now, all those yesterdays didn't really become like an every night type song that Lowlight did, but it's utilizing setlist now that it's not going to last a whole long time in between shows. It's going to get played at least like once or twice a year now. While only being played like, you know, less than 25 times, around 25 times or so, it still has the sense of it feeling special and still has a little bit of that like okay maybe we can expect it tonight and i think that that's maybe the best thing for these yield songs that do happen here and then later they would get into pile it a little more and get into push me pull me that had like a two-year run where they played it a bit and maybe it's just like them taking a chance with this rather than like no way or something like that hearing how it sounds and then being put in the situation where we're like okay well all those yesterdays can be an option now and it works for them. And I think that this has become a more popular song because of it. Well, that didn't really start until 2009 because this went away again for six years until Universal City 2009. And then it started to pop up. You know, you'd get it once or twice a year. I think they played it once in 2022. But this is kind of the one-off thing in between 98 and 2009, which is really interesting that they choose to do it at an acoustic set like this. But there is a really good crowd reaction to it you can tell that the people that are there are the diehards that know this is a cool moment and a rare thing and you know ed's unsure on the lyrics for a moment there's a little hesitation where he fumbles a little bit that's going to happen a couple of times here but yeah something really really special that after this you know you would have to wait another six years to get it doesn't feel like they really struggle after that flub it sounds like you know as opposed to some other songs that are in here may have worked on this a lot more in order to be comfortable with it because again the familiarity it had been five years since i played it i'm sure that 
maybe outside of Stone that nobody else really had it down. And like you said, had a little bit of hesitation really early in the song, but I thought it sounded great. Like this is an example of them going out and seeing, all right, well, we need to play one of those rare songs, but we also need to make it work first. And look, we've seen moments before where they just pick up a song, they haven't played it in years, and it would be next to perfect. I felt like this was practiced a lot. Yeah, we don't have the sound checks going back to the July shows on this, so we don't know how often some of these things are practiced. But yeah, I agree. I think, you know, they worked this up, you know, said they were going to play every song they knew. So I think this is one of the ones that got thrown in there. Very, very cool. And that song is going to be equally, well, I shouldn't say equally. It's going to be more rare. It's going to be drifting. And it's only been played eight times. I believe this one was the fifth. Not one of my favorite live songs. You know, I think the studio version, I don't say that often about Pearl Jam songs. I usually will direct myself to a live version as being the one to go to, but I like the studio version better than this. It feels a lot more kind of stompy and kind of has this like muddy, slower paced and tempo and it really heightens the harmonica in it. I thought that those moments really work in the song, but once you get it live, it's a little bit too country sounding for me. It's like, this feels like a hybrid of what the actual song is and just a country song that sounds way too poppy. Not one of my favorite live songs at all. I love this little song and probably because it's on that same record with Strange Tribe. And I do want to clarify, there are two studio versions of this. I believe you're talking about the original Christmas single version, not yes. the Lost Dogs version, which is a little more up-tempo, not as stark, not as cool as the original version. But I agree, I really like that version as well. Its voice sounds really unique on it. But yeah, I like Drifter. It's, it's one of the forgotten ones, kind of. They haven't played it since Brick School 2010 which has it up there on the lost list. So there's not really a big crowd push. Like you don't see signs for drifting at every show. So I doubt they'll play it again unless it was a really special occasion like this. But I always have a soft spot for this little song. I really like it. I'd, I'd like to hear it someday. Well, now we're getting the second of four binaural songs that are going to be used in this acoustic set. And that's going to be Thin Air. I don't have too much on Thin Air. I think that maybe out of all these songs it translates so well that you're not able to spot the differences between what a normal performance of this is and what this version is it's just a little bit more electric but it still has that warmth to it like it's not a definitive electric song of theirs yeah i think there was a little moment on this i didn't do there's a tiny little flub on Drifton, which again, I'm not going to nitpick about, but there's a little one in thin air too. You can tell these are the ones that were a little rustier. Maybe they didn't have a chance to practice as much as the other ones. And the, the setting too could be a little, you know, you need to give them a break on it. But again, the, the story is binaural and Riot Act. You know, we talked about it, you know, you had pointed out that those are the two records that got played in full over the two nights. So they definitely wanted to squeeze in some of those here. And we're going to go to its brethren from the same record afterwards and I think it's a completely different story because Sleight of Hand is something that is so definitively electric sounding and to that note it's one that's in the set there's going to be another one that's coming up too that you do need Mike's electric sound for you do need him to use a pedal on this song so 
while you're staying true to the sit down aspect of it, Mike, for this one and for all or none, he's bringing an electric guitar into this and, and adding in that extra factor, which barely got done at Bridge School. I believe in some of the later versions of Bridge School, he started doing that a little bit more, but it makes for an interesting and a really nice sounding version of Sleight of Hand. Routine was the thing He'd wake up and wash him for himself in a uniform Something he hadn't imagined being As the merchant traffic passed He found himself staring down this is another one where the drive really works well acoustically you get it soaring and, and next to long road both of these songs are soaring into the atmosphere ed's vocals at times in this sound angelic on it and you really get to feel every word and every story of the song when it's kind of opened up like this yeah i was listening to this and I realized that, like, when I think of sleight of hand, like, this is the version that I think of. Like, interesting throws in that wrote a fucking new by heart. Like, you can tell he's kind of in it on this version. We know, I think it was Toronto where he talked about the origin of it and, like, about going to work and being at this kind of dead end job. And you can tell that he's feeling it on this version. It sounds incredible. Yeah, this is definitely a highlight. Now we're going to get to maybe my favorite version ever of this song. It might be my favorite of the acoustic. It probably is, but it's definitely number one in my favorite footsteps of all time. And here's the reason why I think it's just sort of structurally. And I think it's the evolution plot point that's within the song that we're going to get to. And we're going to talk about right now. It's still very early in the usage of the harmonica in this song. The harmonica is used for the first time at that Bridge School 1999 show, and they had only played it four other times in 2003, so at this point, this is a really rare song to hear, and they played it in 2000, but really not often at all, probably either 10 or a little less than 10 times. And I don't think what people realize is that along with the harmonica section, actually comes a whole new structure within that bridge part and that is the song live that we know of it now 
So the versions that we know of it now, usually Mike kind of comes in right after that second chorus and it's Mike that's starting it and then Ed's piece of the harmonica comes in on the second part you get that huge crowd reaction that always comes when he does the harmonica and back in the 90s that whole section was just Mike so they kept the backing sound to it kind of stark before really hitting on a big finish now here's where it changes a little bit here's the extra elements that are added with this with the harmonica so to push that the instrument in itself isn't enough to like hold down an entire section so you start with Mike like I said go back to Ed to kind of finish that second half now you may or may not notice what the band does to Surge is almost like you don't even recognize that it was a change because it's so fluid as to how you hear it now they go back to that chorus chord progression that dun 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 they go back to that during the harmonica part they never did that before this version this is the first version where they ever did that and that changes the whole dynamic for the song Think about it, right after Ed finishes the harmonica, the whole entire crowd erupts. They take a second to, to clap and, and cheer and all that. But what they were doing in versions before that was that whenever Mike was done with his little piece for the bridge section, they go right into that final chorus instead of giving it that break. So the structurally, it changes a lot. And I just find that so totally interesting that they know you add in this extra element with the harmonica and you need to finish it off to make it sound sort of that the harmonica has this big part in it and the harmonica creates this big change in the song and that's what happens here that's why i love it we talked about this on the evolution episode basically the same exact story here but this is the change starting on this night that you hear every single footsteps rendition since that's a really good call and i know there are a lot of people out there that don't love the harmonica version and maybe there's a reason why you should like again going back to that chord progression that like, kind of resolves it and it gives people that familiarity with it it's almost like you giving it a key change or something where you go like oh here we go this this is so cool 
And I think, too, it elevates that last verse and chorus, I think, is excellent on this version. I don't think I've ever heard them do a final verse and chorus like this. You can tell that they know there's something special happening on stage. Yeah, I agree. Like, I won't go as far to say this is my absolute favorite version, but it's definitely up there. This is another really good highlight and kind of a song that was, like, again, forgotten at the time that we think of now as being, like, this big crowd moment. But at the time, it was one that nobody really talked about it. It kind of entered, like, a little bit of a dark period. Yeah, and I think that the harmonica is definitely the way of getting it out of the dark period. And I love talking about versions of songs like this. And yeah, that was real nerdy into the minutia stuff. But hopefully you guys enjoy that because it doesn't really happen a whole lot on this show where we can get into a huge pivot point of a song that completely changes the game. All right, well, we're getting to another riot act in the set. There's only three more songs here in the acoustic set it flows really well it feels like when you're listening to it it just feels like you're just kind of listening to one completely fluid set where again they don't really pause to talk a a whole lot in this it was the one before the set and then there was one right after of the girl kind of addressing the whole acoustic blood thing but it goes straight through on these songs and it just feels like everything is just from one section to the next just flowing and transitioning into each other just beautifully and all or none to follow up on footsteps i thought was just fantastic you have a beautiful downtrodden emotive song i didn't see a lot of playing time during what should have been the height this is only the sixth version on the 2003 tour you had the sixth version out of the 17 they would go back and do that at benaroy as well which was probably the best version of all time of the song but i think going back to what we were talking about on sleight of hand too you really needed that electric solo from mike or else you don't get the same emotion out of the song with just an acoustic solo on this like some versions of these you, you say all right you know what you could do the solo you could do it a little bit differently and it's going to sound fine i feel like they needed that electricity with all or none here or else you don't get those notes that are being held for so long and you don't get that like piece of mike's soul if you were to hear it on acoustic rather than electric like that is something so special and unique to this song as well as what he was doing in sleight of hand that would be completely different as well but yeah his soul comes out bursting on that solo i wouldn't want it any other way yeah i think this is right there with ben Arroyo as being the best all or none and i think when mike comes in on that solo on the electric guitar i think that is the best moment of the acoustic preset and by proxy the best moment of the entire show just gives me chills when he comes in on the thing it's an amazing solo fits perfectly again this is a song that absolutely criminal that it's only been played 17 times like that should have a zero on the end of it at least
wonderful performance. Yep, and it's something that is the glue that keeps this whole entire acoustic set together. Perfect following footsteps. Parting Ways is gonna be your penultimate from this set. And there's a little bit of a history going back of this being acoustic, and you have to go back to a show we did a couple months ago, which was Pittsburgh 2000, where Ed actually played this with Sonic Youth in the preset because two of the members of Sonic Youth had a family emergency, so they had to kind of change up what to do in the pre-show in the opening spot, and they decide, okay, we're going to do a completely different version of Parting Ways. And this is another where... On normal versions of this, it's completely dominated by Cameron. So now that's the first hurdle that you have to jump across is how are we going to do the song acoustically and still keep it true to what Cameron did? And again, I think this is kind of in the same way like sometimes where it's Ed strumming that makes that almost percussive sound that sort of is the glue to what you're doing. He's going really fast, and he's also like doing some off-time strummings on this too, which makes that feel more like the percussive moment on this, because it feels like he is filling a lot more of the gaps that Matt usually fills. It's usually a very bombastic song, kind of has some out-of-control style. We have compared Retrograde to it, and I think that's a perfect comparison, but they do a really, really nice job of replacing that with the way that Ed is strumming on this. Yeah, I mean, it, it's all about that ending. I think even though Cameron's still not going full blast on it, I think the ending still has a lot of power to it. It just shows, you know, what they can do with acoustic instruments and dynamics and everything like we talked about at the beginning. Yeah, Parting Ways, another just super underrated song that nobody talks about enough. But yeah, the ending on this is just incredible. It was. about to tee up for the final song of this set and he says again if this was an experiment you guys certainly succeeded on your part indifference 
which could have closed any of the three shows if it wanted to. They saved it for this moment. I think that was the absolute perfect thing to do because you get sort of a coming full circle thing where you're almost starting and finishing a full set that's going to be completely different than the rest of your night. You're going to get a whole other band that's going to be performing before you get to see Pearl Jam again. So you needed to finish it in a familiar manner with a song that has big moments in it that people recognize and people can sing along to. And I really liked the choice and don't think that there was any other choice to go with outside of indifference here. It was just kind of fell into their lap. Then I think in this, while Mike was electric on all or none, I think we get to hear stone electric on this version. It ties it all together very nicely. You know, this little place that started with long road, ending with indifference it's like you've got your own little mini show here you've gone through the ups and downs of a full pearl jam show it's about an hour long maybe a little more but ending it with indifference kind of puts a bow on it and creates kind of a line of delineation like this is a stopping point that was something separate and we come back that's going to be a different thing we're going to keep going and it's, it's going to be a new thing so yeah i agree it would have been weird to end it with anything else i think it was a great way to close it out and again you're leaving your crowd absolutely stunned and well you hear him get into it there's a little bit of clapping like you can tell the place is starting to fill up a little bit like we heard a couple people talk about you know by the end of it the thing was a little more full so you you get to hear a little bit of the crowd in this too and that's the closer for what is an instant classic set if it weren't important we wouldn't be sitting here talking about it we'd go on to talk about every single pearl jam moment at some point in history anyway but we wouldn't have a plan to go back to this in the way that we did if it didn't mean something to just about every Pearl Jam fan. So that right there, one of the best things that Pearl Jam has ever done. Well, we don't have an opening act, so I think that all we really need to do is kind of do our first pause for station identification before getting into the main set just to give a little bit of a breather. And it's right here that I'll kind of follow up on how the whole t-shirt sale went and what we made for cystic fibrosis and first of all a big thank you goes out to everybody that not just ordered but all the people that encouraged others to go out and order and to donate to the cystic fibrosis cause some people you guys shared it you know a big thank you out to kevin o'rourke and marty higgins and jill Bittaker and Leela Barzagar and Sylvia Davidson, like so many people saw what we were doing and saw the cause that we were trying to raise for and tried to get everybody, as many people on board with this as humanly possible. And it is my honor to let you guys know that we finished off with 171 shirts sold, which is fantastic. The original goal was 100, you guys. The original goal was 100, so we surpassed that, almost getting to 200. If we had another week, I bet you we would have gotten to 200, but you know what? I'm thrilled with where we got with this, and the money that we have raised for cystic fibrosis, a percentage of the proceeds that we have made, go directly to the foundation, and there will be more 
in Chicago, we are going to be doing an event that will also be fundraising for cystic fibrosis. So hang on to that. Nothing's finalized yet, but there's some ideas that are being put out there. We're looking at venues and something should be going on next couple weeks. We should be announcing something for sure. But the amount of money that we raised for CFF through this fundraiser, $855, you guys. That is awesome. That's fantastic. And I think that's the most money we've ever raised for anything. So nothing. That's true. Yeah. Look, it's, it's all coming from you guys. It's all coming from you guys. And it's all thanks to you guys. And after a while, it really didn't feel like it was about the shirt anymore. It felt like it was about what could we do? How much could we raise for them? How much research can we put into this? And obviously for so many people, they were so committed to this because of Sean Sullivan, who was a great friend to so many in this community who passed away last year from cystic fibrosis and challenges that he faced through that. So it's just one of these things where the community can come together and you can see people being a part of it. And yeah, that's one of the things I love about this community the most is that when someone or something needs the help and needs the attention people come in full force and you guys were just excellent with this thank you so much and just a reminder to you all that you can expect shipping to begin on august 1st or the first week of august that's when we should be getting things squared away and it should be going to you and you should be getting it delivered before the show start in St. Paul. So I'm going to guarantee that at least for the U.S. crowd. I know we had some other people internationally that are getting shipped to. International is a crapshoot. I can't predict what's going to happen with those. But I would hope that sending it a month beforehand would get it to your door before these shows start. So hopefully... We can see you guys on the road and anybody that's going to Chicago, especially because we're going to be doing an event for it. Hopefully we'll see you wearing the shirt at the event. So keep that in mind. And again, big thank you to everybody for helping out. Just a wonderful cause here. Amazing response. Well done, everybody. All right. Well, back to the rock, I suppose. Main set. Now, as we have said, it's going to be 45 songs, so we're going to work through this whole thing. It's going to be a big main set, and we're going to work through two encores, technically three encores as well. So we're just going to bang a lot of these out. So the first section here, we're going to get a trio, and I would think that they saved this or they realized that they had these three songs. And they're like, well, why don't we just put them all together? Because you have, in descending order... Can't Keep, the opener of Riot Act, Breaker Fall, the opener of Binaural, and then Brain of Jay, the opener of Yield, all back to back to back here, all opening songs from the last three records that have just come out. Do you think that's intentional, or do you think that is something that just kind of happened? Knowing how Ed runs things, I'd probably say it's intentional. I mean, they're trying to make a point of, like, separating from the preset. I think, like, opener, 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 like, this is a different thing. You're giving it a different vibe. You're coming out with songs that people associate with openers and beginnings. So, yeah, I think I think it was done on probably on purpose. And to that point, like, you have to kind of start off the whole thing, and you do have to separate it from the acoustic set. And the way that can't keep comes out of that 
feels like it's a pretty dramatic version. It feels like kind of every piece within the song have these surges and have these moments where it's just building the momentum off the last piece. And I think a lot of the versions of Can't Keep that we talked about from this year that we've done, like maybe two or three others, they've felt pretty pensive and reflective, but this one is all about the surge and all about the progression that it has within the song. And I love how that kind of bleeds into Break or Fall, which gets really charged up, of course. And then Brain of Jay, of course, is going to follow that up in just the same kind of ferocity and same kind of momentum. It is starting to become, from very early on, just a clinic of Pearl Jam songs that they're just going to knock out back to back to back to back, all great stuff and phenomenal fast performances. Yeah, I love this version of Can't Keep. I think it's got some really interesting dynamics. I think Ed is probably playing guitar on this. It sounds like there's three guitars going, but I love what he and Stone are doing. There's a little bit of a lead run on that main riff that sounds very, very cool. And there's a moment where I think almost everything drops out except the drums and the bass. Maybe maybe even the bass drops out for a minute and you just get Ed and Cameron. It sounds very, very cool. Like Again, why have they not played this since 2014? Like, this That's is weird. Such a cool little song that can really set a tone for a show when it's played early on. Yeah, this is great. I mean, everything kind of from here, this main set gets overshadowed a lot, but there is some really good stuff here. Can't keep included. Yeah, Breaker Fall was great. Really charged up. Ed and Mike were highlights of this as Mike crushed the solo. Ed's vocals just shattering these. And same on Brandon J. There was a little bit of a flub he got in a little bit early on the song and there's going to be a song and a couple songs later here and there that look when you're playing 45 on the night like you said in the beginning it's all about the pacing yourself it's all about pacing yourself and he's going to make these little bits and mistakes here because they're charged up to do this and they got a lot you know you almost have to kind of think about what's going to be the next song when you're doing the song that's in front of you and there's going to be one later that's going to have a pretty massive change in in lyrics and all that and and kind of be sort of a flub almost throughout but what i love there was a really good lyric change at the end of brandon J. Spin a Black Circle, Ghost Green Disease. And Spin a Black Circle is really a piece of the last combination there, but I couldn't break up the opener, so that's just how we piece that together, but a lot of great intensity. It caps off that little bit, and then transitioning into something like Ghost, which is still pretty upbeat, but it just feels like almost a slight redirection into just a different style of song, but it doesn't feel like momentum is changing at any point. It still feels like it's going at this like very steady and fluid pace going on here. And, you know, when Ghost, it's much faster than the usual version. I think a lot of these versions of 
this early in the main set is kind of in a way sort of like 2013 where they would play a ton of songs in the main set and a lot of those very early ones mind your manners and the corduroy they would all feel like they're being played extra fast just to get all the songs in and to be cognizant of their time a little bit i saw that in ghost Green Disease, I think it's feeding off all the good momentum as well and taking a little bit of how where Ghost was paced and, you know, fulfilling the obligation of just getting a lot of this quick stuff in and and spicing it up and making this a more progressive show in that facet probably got more people excited and fired up about this while the set's happening. Yeah, I see this first part as kind of a reaction to the preset as well. Like, imagine them coming off and having to go sit for an hour and a half or whatever it was while, you know, Slater Kinney was going on and having to sit there watching like, oh, I can't wait to get back out there. Can't wait to get back out there. And just coming out with this just ripping first six songs to get into it. Yeah, I think that added a lot to it. You know, wanting to get out there and just let loose and rock out for lack of a better term. They got a lot to fulfill the obligation here, so everything is going to feel like it's crammed in these big spots, and it all really works within this set. Drummer Christ and Given a Fly are going to be back-to-back before you get Ed to speak a little bit, and I love Tremor Christ on this show, and it had not been played at all on this U.S. run. It had been played in Australia... That was February of 2003, and it's really proof that this tour was a long one. 61 shows in between that point where they played in Australia and night three here. This version, though, I think it's just the runs off of Jeff's bass line here and how vibrant and bouncy it is. That gave the song its defining character. And there's a little bit of an extension at the end, too. It's kind of small, but you notice that Ed doesn't come right away with the lyrics at the end. They just kind of extend it just a little bit. I wonder if that was just Ed missing a cue or him just kind of milking in the moment. Whatever it was, it was a nice little touch. I like that. And then Given a Fly, it feels like it could have been more of a crowd participation song, but I don't think those kind of versions are here just yet. It might need one or two more years going into 2006 or so, but it's an obvious play for Night 3. Remember Christ, I think, is cool because it just teeters on the edge of falling apart. Like, it goes right up to that point where, like, you think, like, okay, are they going to be able to get through it? And it walks right up to that line and then does a crossover. Like, it still sounds great. They still get through it. And like I said, Jeff is, is incredible on it. But it's got that quality of being just on the verge of falling apart that makes it a really interesting listen. And yeah, I was transfixed the whole time. One of the highlights of the show.
Brett says here, I'd like to raise a toast to Boston and show three. We got some songs to get through here tonight. And as you do, you save the best for last. This one could have been played in the first set, but we saved it for this one. And that's Nothing As It Seems, which is going to run right into Crop Duster, which is going to run right into Faithful, which will have a little something extra from Javier on. But what do you think about this little section here? What really drew your interest? Oh, yeah, it's the intensity of Nothing As It Seems. I mean, we talked about all those binaural songs in the preset and how, like, it added so much and we might need it to go electric on them. And, yeah, it's the same thing carrying over from Nothing As It Seems, just the intensity from Mike and being able to have, the, you know, the full backing with Cameron and everything on the, the full kit and pounding away adds so much to it. And, and I think this is the one that completes binaural for the trilogy i don't think this is the last binaural one that was played so i believe you're uh, right yeah so interesting that you know nothing as it seems one of the main singles from that record is the final one that brings it together but yeah nothing as it seems here i think is the highlight you know it sits in that even flow spot where it would normally be it gives mike a chance to let loose yeah i fully agree with you about cameron i was just pounding the shit out of this and that's what is making that solo soar a little bit more than usual is just Cameron's backbone on it. And also like the ending of this had a little bit of that flair for the dramatics too. It felt like just that final part where Ed is doing the last little lyric line, just that nothing as it seems a little bit. It felt more of like a dramatic moment than it usually does. It felt like they were really kind of pushing that a little bit and kind of breaking that and pacing it out to give it sort of that final stance on it. I thought that that part sounded really good. here we talk about faithful now the way that ed is kind of teeing it up is saying we saved the song specifically for evening number three which feels right because this is always a song that they would go to and say hey this is for the fans this is a connected song with you guys a lot of people love to call this fandom and the people in this fandom the faithful and that makes a whole lot of sense due to what this song means and the lyrics that are interpreted in this but i mean it's clearly a nod to the insane dedication that these fans have and you have to say that if it wasn't for them things like the experiment don't happen i think that while pearl jam does some cool things on their own they definitely know that the fans anticipation for those cool things are worth doing more and that kind of gives them the motivation and the drive to do those things so yeah it makes a lot of sense and now let's give it off to javier here who's going to talk a little bit about the tuning of this song and some of the utilization of power chords in this so let's hear what he has to say Unfaithful. Back on the world says that no one's left here. It's rare to come upon a breeze that has not been around or been stepped on. Where the notions we listen up, we have not had the opportunity to talk about this song especially because this interpretation is pretty, pretty good. 
let's start with the tuning. It's weird. It's supposed to be OpenG, but actually it's some sort of a hybrid of an OpenG. But if somebody has any questions, just let me know and we can go deeper in about the tuning, but it's some sort of OpenG. I love the fact that the majority of the times, later on, Mike was using more like a Gretsch Fireglow or Jetglow, sorry, guitar, which is the Gretsch, the silver one you have seen them use, for example, in Sirens or in Fateful. But for this tour, he was using a Gibson ES-335, which is based on the 1964 ES-335 that Eric Clapton used to use in Cream. So pretty cool guitar. I don't know why it got out of rotation, but I haven't seen it after this tour. And the Stone is using like the Les Paul that he will use in a common basis, but with the weird tuning. The use of power chords in an open G tuning guitar, some sort of hybrid tuning in the way that they use is very, very interesting because you want to use power chords without being sounding like very overwhelming. And I think they do it perfectly fine. And, and, and again, the interpretation is absolutely fantastic. I think the song has a lot of jangle to it and it complements its voice perfectly fine. So yeah, wanted to talk about this one because we're tuning, we're song, but I need a little bit of analysis for this week. All right, Javier, don't go away because we're going to go right back to you with the next song. That makes a whole lot of sense for you to talk about. So we'll get you back in it while going. So let's just get into that now then. Now, right before the experiment began, the band actually brought Go back at the Bristow show that happens on the 1st. It had been 257 shows since last played. And that was in November of that 1995 run. I believe it might have been San Jose. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I believe it's San Jose. And it's kind of brought back in the weirdest way possible because the way that I think everybody knows this song to be and its calling card is that just booming intro that gets popularized by Dave A. And it becomes the signature of what the song is. And weirdly, for these few versions that happened in 2003, it gets abandoned in favor for a very riffy replication of what the bass's role is. why that's so because again it's such an iconic moment within Pearl Jam that drum intro as everybody would know like coming off of a big song on 10 with a live and then coming in with that like kind of re-energizes the album really early on and gives it this depth and is just a song that they played hundreds of times very very early on in their career and they abandon it for the riffy version of the bass intro and I like I'm wondering why would they attempt that? Was it the lack of time to really put everything together so that's what they came up with? Like, I'm a little perplexed as to why they figured it out this way. Well, I think they in my tree did, right? It's kind of the same way that they brought back in my tree with the guitar intro, which that I think worked really well and sounds really cool. 
has a very different kind of take on it, this one I think doesn't really work. Like it's very awkward. It ends up being very cool. You know that Cameron can absolutely pound the shit out of the drums. That's not a problem. But yeah, they only did this, I think, twice. You have Presto and this, and then they didn't bring it back again until 2006 when they went back to the original way. I think, you know, Jeff's quote, I think it was about Garden, which is like, you know, sometimes we've broken songs down and torn them apart, but it just ends up being the original way it was the best. And you, you could apply that to Why Go as well. I, there's a reason they only tried this two times. It didn't really stick. Whereas the In My Tree version was done a few more times before they brought back to the original way. But yeah, interesting because of the uniqueness of it and where it lies in the song's history, but not a highlight from the show. In a way, it is, though, because it is so different. You know what I mean? Like, it's... Yeah, I just don't think it works. I'm not saying that it works. I'm just saying that it's just something because it is so unique to this version in this show that it's kind of one of those things like, hey, do you remember when they try to fuck around with Why Go? And you go back to this as being like, okay, well, it really didn't have a home just yet as an everyday song in a set. And that does come in 2006, like you mentioned, but it's just very interesting to bring it back and bring it back in this factor. But I think you have to give credit to the crowd because they come in on this as like the song never got rusty for them. They do the whole why go home. They do that whole bit. And it seems like this should be one that at this point going forward, the band should be like, okay, well, we should play it every single place that we play. And it would become that very, very quickly after this. But the band has to realize that it's not a back burner song. Mike has a really just dirty electric solo on this and it would go back to its original way. But like, it's one of those little pieces of history that is just so interesting that it's worth being mentioned and and talking about whenever you do get up to them. And, and granted, we only have, the other version to talk about someday who knows when we'll do that Bristow show, but it's just something that is really intriguing and does stand out from all of the madness in the 45 songs that happened in a set. Now let's get somebody's take here that can kind of go through what this intro and the sound of this intro and maybe kind of explain the whys of the whole thing. So the gear guru, this is an interesting one for him to do. So let's get to Javier on this one. how I feel about why go on this version I really like the one with the intro with the drums I think it creates that momentum for the song that the song really needs but yeah it was very shocking to hear it in this form but also like it kind of like it starts fast and then they slow down a little bit and then they go fast again yeah I think it's something that maybe they, sh- they should have worked a little bit better but again, I just give me the, the old school why go that everybody knows. But, but yeah, really interesting interpretation of the song. Like I was saying before, the use of elements here is rare too. 
because up from 2000 till 2011, maybe 2013, they were using high-end pickups guitars for this kind of song, but then they kind of like evolved to Mike using the Strat and then Stone using his Gifts of Les Paul, the 1973 one, the, the reissue that he has. But yeah, it's, it's hard for me to conceive this song in the way that it is right now and maybe when you especially like when if it's so well in those opener spots without the drum intro and i think the drum intro really adds all the build up like that tension that you can like create that interaction with the crowd but yeah it's a very unique occasion so i think maybe they needed a very unique version of the song but yeah it has so many different things to of the why go version that we're used to it like i was saying before the instruments that they were using and all that. Killer solo, good old school combo, really good wah pedal in front of a TS9, and just screeching that guitar through those Fender amps that Mike was using around that time. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe this is something that we can argue about over social media, or maybe Randy and John, they want to explore a little bit more over the episode. But yeah, I just, I don't know. It feels weird without the drum intro. All right. Well, thanks once again. That's the last one for the trilogy for Javier. So really not going to be the last of him because we are going to hear more from him. If you're on Patreon, he is going to do a Patreon exclusive featuring songs that we weren't able to get in these episodes from the first two and also the show as well. So you get to hear more of an extended version of what he was talking about in these shows on Patreon some point in the next week or two. It'll be fun. We're we're working it out. We're making it all work together. And it might be something that he goes back to like every two weeks or so where we get kind of a, a normal show out of this, which is I'm very excited for. I think he's in seven months absolutely deserved his own show on over on Patreon. So looking keep, forward keep to that. Busy. Yep. Yeah. Always. Always, always, always. All right. Now we're kind of in the midway point to the latter stages of this main set, and we're going to kick it off with Wishlist. Now, Wishlist, as I mentioned up when talking about Brandon J, I said there was a song that had a lot of lyric flubs on it. Nearly this entire song has the lyric flubs. It's, look, I would think that this would be the worst performance of the night if it weren't for the Ebo section and weren't for the tag because of just how drastic some of those flubs were. And he really loses his place multiple times in the song, like at least two or three, where he kind of just checks out or really doesn't know what the lyrics are, which is weird because this is one they're playing every other night. Yeah, this performance is tinged with a little bit of, I'm not going to say resentment, but we, we got we to get into this a little bit because this is oh, the... God. This is the one where Atlanta enters the chat, and we, we got to talk about this a little bit. I mean, yes, he apologizes, and like, yes, it's lighthearted, and I don't really take it personally, but this is the part where he goes on, and the crowd does a very good call and response. It'd be great if you could sing. It's not an easy part. Believe me. We didn't give him this part to sing in Atlanta, I'll tell you that. And then he has a little, little quip of the afterwards about, you know, teeth in a Georgian's mouth and all that, which 
you know, rubs me a little bit the wrong way. And it would be fine if they had gone back and played here the next year or the year after or the year after that. But this is kind of the line where they've only come back once since this show. And yeah, it just this always sticks in my head is like, oh, this is the show where he, he talks shit about Atlanta. So that's my little take on Wishlist. It is a very good version. I do like the way, why, why can't I touch it? It was always cool, but this is always going to maybe cringe a little bit. Yeah, I, I wonder if the lack of Atlanta participation, and we've covered that show before. I didn't really notice any lack of anything from that crowd. No, I mean, a really up, up until here, like a city with a pretty good history with the band, you could say sure. like above average. And then after this, it just went downhill. I wonder if it's that show where he just kind of notices that and it becomes sort of a joke. And then, you know, Jeff gets mugged and beat up in Atlanta. And like, that's it. They now have from what was really a rich history. And, you know, from recent, I hope a lot of you got your your vault in from the Atlanta 94 show. I just got mine. Well, look, I think that. I can't speak for you, but I can speak for the song that it's not the most relevant thing in the song. But I loved the Ebo section. It feels like they go off for a couple minutes on this, and it sounds excellent. And then you get into the Buzzcocks tag of Why Can't I Touch It? And yeah, there's a great call and response, and Ed kind of gets to encourage them a little more because it's the Buzzcocks. I can see not a lot of people in that audience really knowing the song too much. This was actually... the used the song in Ted Lasso the penultimate episode of yep. Ted Lasso I got yep. very excited for that yep. so very cool I've heard this used in other shows before too it it's, seems like Buzzcocks yeah, love, love the Buzzcocks version love that original version of it of course yeah it goes on but, for like six and a half minutes or something it's, it's like their longest song by far Mm-hmm. but yeah very very cool here they were doing that because they had this little stretch I think from the first two Mansfield shows up to the first MSG show where the Buzzcocks were on tour with them. And a lot of you know that from that wish list at MSG where they did the same Why Can't I Touch a Tag? That sounded really good there too. So yeah, look, I loved it. I thought it was great and it kind of makes up for the lyric flubs and maybe a little bit for the Atlanta slander. Love is real We all know 
right, man trilogy time, guys. It's a man trilogy in the Mansfield trilogy, right? That works for me. We're going to do, I think, what is the most classic combination of the three and kind of leads up to what would be the big moment. We're going to start with leather and then we're going to go into nothing and go into better. And I'm surprised that they didn't do more of this. And we talked about the opening three songs, the album opener songs in the beginning of this set, but I'm surprised they didn't do more like, you know, the single songs together or something like that, or Christmas single songs packaged together, something along those lines. I'm surprised that there wasn't a lot more packaging than Mm. this. I don't think they like doing like a shtick. He'll do that stuff, like you said, with the openers, with Can't Keep Breaker for Brandon J. He'll do it when he can keep it kind of close to the vest and like have it be not as obvious. I don't think they go for a lot of the obvious ones. Yeah, we weren't getting a, like an I section or a U section like they did at uh, at DC in 08, you know? We weren't getting any of that. But Leatherman starts off kind of fun kind of bouncy and then this is what i like about this you start off with the fun one then you go and completely change the tone with nothing man a very pensive version somber tone the crowd is a huge takeaway on this though they are keeping up with ed creating all this call and response moments themselves and that really wasn't entirely common for a 2003 version of nothing man 2003 was like the first point where you could see it be elevated but it wasn't elevated just just yet because it would take basically the whole entire avocado tour off they only played it like two or three times on that whole entire 2006 tour so it wasn't that moment just yet but it feels like the band took a really serious approach to this version of Nothing Man, and, and the crowd interaction almost in a way like gets caught off guard and makes it feel more like a recent sing-along that you would get nowadays easily. But it felt like they were taking a serious approach and the, and the crowd just went ballistic on it, which was great. I think Ed's really surprised, you know, Better Man, we talked about 2003 was kind of the beginning of the modern era of it, but it wasn't really the big showstopper that it would become. But I think that takes that energy from Nothing Man and sends it right into the beginning of Better Man. It's a cool moment. Yeah, it really is. And I feel like we, as we've gone along here, 
doing the 2003 shows, we've noticed that Better Man is getting more and more and more exposure and more mm-hmm. participated moments. And this is just another one of those where Ed, I don't think he sings one line from the beginning of the song up until right. that second verse. So it just another fun moment that the crowd is in full swing, in full force. But you don't get a very extended version of this. It feels like a very, very shortened up version after the intro. No tag or anything like that, but it's it's still effective. And they're they're not holding it out for the end of the set or anything. You know, Better Man could easily be a set ender, but we're we're not quite there yet. Yeah, I don't think they've ever ended a set with Better Man following the Man trilogy. I, somebody can correct me on that, but I don't think that's ever happened before. That'd be so. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Potentially, sure. All right. Well. We got four more to the end of the set here. We might as well package everything together. Half full, untitled MFC, and then blood. Not acoustic blood, but just a normal, regular old screaming and fierce version of blood, I suppose. But we are able to kind of go back and get some mic moments in half full now, and he's back for the spotlight. It comes out firing immediately right out of the gate. It feels like throughout the whole song, he's pulling out all the tricks, creating big moments, and the band starts to pick up on it and goes really hard as well. Like This is another one where Cameron is setting a backbone to what Mike is doing on this and making it even more like electric sounding and making it even more kind of bombastic sounding and fast and just explosive at times. Mike sounds really, really good on Half Full. Yeah, I mean, we talked about so many this year, doing all these 2003 shows, all these just incredible versions of Half Full, and like another one where the ending is just killer. Like, I love listening to this. All these versions have been great, and this one's right there with it. Yeah, another one where I might need a moment here, kind of late in the set to let loose. Yeah, great version of Half Full. And again, still got one more Riot Act to go, but we're bringing that one to a close as well. So, Untitled going into MFC weirdly like doesn't feel like a huge highlight in this i wonder if it was more in the mid set if it would have felt like a bigger thing but they get through untitled rather quickly even though there are changes in the lyrics about the ocean winds and we get a 15 minutes or so instead of a 25 minutes or so so a little bit of a less extended version but i like how stone is taking a little bit of some of what he's doing into the beginning of mfc then it has like a really poppy sounding solo on the back end of that as well so yeah i I don't think that that was necessarily like a big highlight for the show but again the difficulty of trying to find how to intersplice every single song here and make it work. It did not work, but I feel like in the middle of the set, maybe it would have had more of a highlighted moment. This is a 20 song main set. It's nothing to laugh at in its own right. And I think by this time you're getting a little bit of fatigue too. Like, Something like MFC is going to come in and spark some energy. You know, it's quick, but after you've had all these, the man trilogy, which is a big moment, you just had Mike come out with a big solo. feels like, yeah, MFC, you're expecting something a little bigger there, but it does the job of just kind of transitioning into the end and and getting us there. Blood closing out this main set, and we talked about Blood a little bit. Remember the version we talked about that was a mid-set version, and it was like Blood into Dissonant? You remember that? Yeah, yeah. Now, this is how you do Blood Right. Close with it, get the crowd pumping along to the beat. Ed sounds fantastic on this, it just lets it all out. The echo effect on his vocals that took you into the bridge sounded terrific. Like, this one sounds like he's 
able to let his voice propel and just kind of let it all out. And this is 32 songs in the night already, so like he's still showing that he has a lot of that left inside of him. So yeah, that's a big moment to let that out. And again, kind of the tongue-in-cheek, this is not going to be an acoustic blood in this set. And then coming out and closing the main set with blood kind of wraps another nice little bow around this. So I think it would have been funny if they had had an acoustic guitar on stage just for this and like like a riffy porch intro for blood maybe or just have have stone come out and like turn on that little pedal that the acoustic sound on it real quick just to fuck with people just a little tongue cheek thing i think that would have been fun but yeah this just rips again like 2003 blood had come back in full force and and been close to what it was in the, in the 90s so yeah very good for sure all right we're at encore one time to pause for another station identification sometimes you get these when you have bigger shows and longer shows so now we're going to just mention patreon for a second or two and thank a brand new patron from the giggle egg tier and that would be joseph smith so joseph thank you so awesome. much you have an episode request waiting for you at some point in the future take advantage of that as well as anybody else that's on the horizon or the giggle egg tier that hasn't taken advantage of that yet please send an email get in touch on social media wherever you want and let us know what show you want us to cover so look we want to get to all of them at some point we will get to all of them so Hopefully you guys will get that for us at some point soon. But for anybody that's not on Patreon and might want to have an episode request, the next couple weeks are going to be episode requests, as a matter of fact. Then what you're going to want to do is go on over to patreon.com slash live on four legs, donate to the show. And the tiers that you can donate to, you can either try out the whole thing and get it for free for seven day trial. And then after the seven day trial is over, then you're in, then you are our patron for a dollar a month, because that is actually under the bonus leg tier, which once your seven day trial is over, you get charged for that $1 for bonus tier level. So if you're interested in that, then head on over and get your free fill of everything that's in our archive it's literally everything that we've ever said on these little patreon breaks you can go in and listen to those it's all there and also if you'd rather not do the seven day trial if you just want to join and pay the dollar a month you can do that on a bonus like tier that's going to get you all of everything that is on the platform as well and think about this well we have coming in a couple months in september it's going to be pretty important Those are going to be the show reviews, so hang on to your hats. Those are going to be really fun because those shows are going to be straight from site where we will be talking right after the show and talking within a group of people that all just experienced the thing. You know, last year, a lot of it was just you and I, John, just kind of taken from the live feeds and everything. We don't have the full source of the show and everything like that. But this year, there's going to be a conscious effort of getting every single show and people at every single show involved and getting the word of mouth right after the show ends. So that's something to look forward to for now. There's going to be other Patreon things. Do the Evolution Evolution episode is coming in the future. They're going to be more of the late night shows. As I mentioned before with Javier, he is going to have his own show after a little while. So hopefully that'll be out in a week or two. But 
if you want to donate more than just a dollar a month, the $5 gigaleg tier is available for you as well. As mentioned, that will get you an episode request as well as the Horizon Leg tier, which is $10 a month. That gives you an episode request, a profile episode, a profile on liveonfourlegs.com, and also at some point in the future, there will be an exclusive merch package for those who are Horizon Leg members. So that's pretty much that patreon.com slash live and four legs or download the patreon app and search for live and four legs or just go to live and four legs.com there's a big button that says become a patron and that's another way to do it so thanks to all the people that continue to donate you guys are helping us through this time of going on tour and everything like that so big respect and and thanks to you guys and there's going to be more coming over there in the next couple of months, so keep your eye on it. We'll have more for you very soon. All right. Once again, back to The Rock. And yeah, like this first encore set is going to be seven songs that were just the next seven that they hadn't played yet. And there's only going to be one more from Riot Act. that That's going to be the last original song that they hadn't played yet in the second encore but this is really the last of the bunch that is the original songs the leftovers we're getting to the yes thanksgiving leftovers you're making making the turkey sandwich i mean i wouldn't call black and jeremy a leftover but it does feel like all these other ones the the five that happened before that it does feel like hey these are ones we never play so let's just have fun with those you know like this is the real true rare section of these three shows and of course it doesn't include last exit or glorified g or red mosquito but we've already been through that hellscape so we won't go back to that Ed says, thank you. You've been very gracious this evening. There's still quite a few songs left on this list. The three I mentioned are not. You can hear him ask, what's the first one? And so he says, take a deep breath and enjoy the rest of this. And obviously, there there it is. There's the word. So breath is going to be the first of the bunch. And habit is going to follow up on breath. And breath was awesome during this. I feel like... That MSG version that they played a couple nights before that we know from the DVD, that was an awesome version of this song. And it seemed like Breath was really starting to become a true showstopper on this tour. Yeah, I agree. Breath is great here. I think it's in a good position where they've had a break and they're on the back end of this now. I think there's definitely a sense of like belief I don't maybe is not the right word but a sense of accomplishment maybe a sense of like you can tell on stage that like okay now is the time when we can relax we've gotten through the heavy part of this let's just bring it home have some fun it gets a little bit more lighthearted with a couple of exceptions of course one that you mentioned in particular after this but here I think is where they kind of start to like no pun intended take a breath relax a little bit and just play some of the songs to have some fun and like you said just get through them and breath is a, is a great choice to open up an encore anytime so yeah again another one that gets the crowd really back into it immediately oh yeah fully agree on that mike scorched the solo on breath i thought that that was fantastic so that'd get you into habit afterwards and the big thing that happens in habit the talking point of that is just the insane ending on this it's 
all out. It's completely wild, but it also almost even has like a rich tone for Habit, which is really interesting. It doesn't have like that real distorted, muddy vibe to it. It kind of feels like a little, I wouldn't say cleaner, but like it feels like they're playing on some kind of more uh, expensive equipment. The less balls instead of the beat up strats from the pawn shop. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I mean, this one, after this tour, completely falls by the wayside. Right. You know, they only played it six times this year, and Habit was really just holding on because of its combo with MFC throughout all of 2000. So I wonder if using Untitled more in 2003 had anything to do with Habit just kind of taking a nosedive, but mm-hmm. they really go out on the ending of this. It feels like they are playing into just this fun atmosphere and just kind of throwing everything at the wall yeah it's, it's all catharsis and energy and let's just let it loose like we're here at the end let's just bring it home and, and have some fun and just let everything go well all right three more of the rare ones that we're going to get the 210 songs it says that this is a b-side off the last record for the serious collector and it says it's a song for howard zinn Something very common for Boston shows. I believe that almost every time that they're in Boston, when Down is a staple of their live set, it gets played. I'm pretty sure you can go back, and if they played two at Fenway, it's definitely played at one of those shows. I believe they played in 2010. I think it's always played when they go back here because it's Howard Zinn's hometown. So I don't know if you heard this, but during this little speech you hear from somebody in the crowd and they shout for something that is pretty common to hear at rock and roll shows. But like, this would be the only time where you can say that the probability of that happening might be a little higher than usual. They call out for obviously Freebird. Did you hear that? I mean, at this <laughs> uh, point, it's I don't simple, remember like, hearing that distinctly, but yeah, it's, it's kind of, you get numb to it because like the guy that, yells out Freebird obviously doesn't really have much of a sense of humor if that's the only thing he can think of but it feels like if they were to do it I guess if they're gonna throw out the kitchen sink then this would be the show where the kitchen sink gets thrown out you know what I mean I've heard Simple Man at a Pearl Jam show that was enough for me (laughs) any band that does Freebird is just pandering to that one guy don't pander to that one guy play something else that's better not crashing on Freebird or anything like that, but down in between here is a lot of fun. Mike's take on the solo is a lot different. I thought that that was really cool, just changing things up, and the way that he does things sometimes can feel like, okay, well, that's kind of a staple solo. We've talked about that before with songs like I Am Mine. He doesn't really do much different amongst the waves. He doesn't really do much different than what the studio recording is. They're very simplistic, but I always thought that Down was kind of one of those songs, but he changes it up so much more than you would think. And this one feels like a little bit kind of like a lower tone to it than it usually has. All right, let's get into another Ed speech here. Kind of finishes off his thought about Howard Zinn. Kind of gets to explaining who he is within this speech that follows up Down. And says it's an author from your neck of the woods. Name drops both people's history of the United States, and you can't be neutral on a moving train. And someone up there has a sign that says Zinn for president. Ed fully agrees with that. There was a couple guys who lost their lives last week, and there have been 72 people that have died since this war has been 
you can hear and see him do the quotations, quote unquote, over. We need to make sure our thoughts and our actions are still with these people over there. You read about it and you can't imagine the pain that these families are going through and you just want it to be for a good reason. It'll be a fine day when they all come back home. It'll be a fine day when they have the public interest at heart and not towing up to the oil companies or other big corporations. We've got the West Coast, Seattle, San Francisco, and we have a lot of great activists out here in Boston. Now, if we just get the middle involved, I think everything will be all right. So be strong and peace out. And then Stone gets introduced and says, I've been waiting for the whole tour to get the mic, so it feels so good. Since we're playing all the songs, we're going to play the one that I sing. And we haven't rehearsed it all, which is fine by me. You remember another time where they didn't rehearse Mankind and how that went at a certain college in a certain state? Yeah. That was the, the last time they played it before this. Wouldn't you think that they would try to play it before that? No. I'm gonna try to play a little now. definitely a bit tentative at first it's nowhere close to what happened in state college but it does get a slower start it felt like matt was really simplifying himself in order to get the band kind of going here in the middle it does happen to have like this nice little groove to it and it does seem like maybe the crowd is helping out a little bit but once you get towards the end, it all unravels again, and, and Stone seems pretty satisfied by that. They almost got through it unscathed, but that ending popped up and reared its ugly head and almost tore that thing apart. But yeah, Stone handles it very well. That, it's, it's a funny little speech that he has after I like that. And to follow that up is another one of the extreme rarities in their catalog, and that is being played for the first time since March of that year and the eighth overall time. You is such a tremendous song. And yeah, it's another one that like the 24 is way too low that it probably would have benefited more if it was in like the sixties or seventies that it could be one of those deep cuts, like sad that more people attach to the song, the more it gets played, but it just has never reached that. It needs a Taylor Swift cover. (laughs) That's a really deep cut throwback right there for those of you who might remember that. Yeah, Taylor Swift cover. It could happen. Think about it. It might work. Now, Taylor's version. (laughs) Taylor's version. God. (laughs) I was on vacation this whole week. My wife is a huge Taylor fan. My sister-in-law is a huge Taylor fan. And my niece, who is 15, is a huge Taylor fan. We listen to about an average of four hours a day of Taylor Swift. 
nothing else and it came all from my niece's phone she has nothing else on her phone but taylor swift and oh not the biggest fan respect whatever happens in that community but uh, just not music for me you know but you know what on this version on pearl jam's version of you they're really tight on it for having nearly never played it and again just to add it to that list yep love it it's great Getting through it here. Here's one you actually might know. He says this kind of like very kind of under his breath a little bit. He says, I hope you don't relate. So Black and then Jeremy's gonna finish this out. Now, Black, if you notice, Ed gives out a little bit of a subtle shout out to the crowd saying, All you kids at play. And that can kind of gets a nice little moment thrown in there. But it is about Mike. It's about how in some versions of Black. He's absolutely not able to contain himself before the solo actually begins and is just going mad on this. Another classic version that happens in 2003 with that classic tone from Stone and what I thought was the Gretsch, which I guess is more of what that acoustic electric sound that you talk about a lot from that guitar. But it is essentially the same kind of thing as the Gretsch sound. But boy, oh man, this is a mic moment. the demon loud vibrant all the superlatives you can give to mike in an eight minute version of this it's soul crushing and in a way still has that beauty and that magnificent just soaring vibe to it i love black and i love this version of black and i go back and forth about whether black would have been better in the acoustic set because you really only had footsteps and difference there to represent the really early 
years of Pearl Jam. You had a lot of Riot Act, a lot of a No Code era from Long Road in there as well. That would have been really cool to have Black and Negro. I think that would have been a big moment. But saving it for here at the end kind of gives it more of a featured thing. And I think, again, you're dealing with fatigue here. You're 38 songs into this thing now on the day. But they can still pull out just an incredible rhythm of black and made even more incredible by the fact that they're just pulling out these kind of quote unquote throwaway songs leading up to it. And then to hit with black and Jeremy here at the end of the encore, she's like, holy shit, like you almost forgot that those existed. It's like, oh man, you're just waiting on this and didn't even know it. That's something I should have asked everybody that wrote in for a story. I should have asked, like, were you counting on your fingers what songs that they had left? And were you like, you know, with you a song like crossing things off? Yeah, right, right. And like coming down to this point in the set, you see Black and Jeremy like, oh, OK, this makes sense that they're going to actually end up playing these. But then you have the few that I mentioned before that were left over. They probably should have been played, too. But I think that it would have been cool in that first part of the set, the preset. But I think you do need it here to kind of hold down the anchor because you played so many just random songs like outside of breath. These are all very random things. You have Habit, which is a deeper cut off no code. You have Down, which is a B-side from the last record. Mankind, which is Stone Song. And then You, which is, you know, maybe one of the deepest cuts that they have at the time. Like you need something that is familiar and also a showstopper to make this feel like you are going out on a big moment because that's it after this all you have is jeremy that's left and jeremy's going to be your last big original song that hadn't been played yet i'm not counting arc in that i'm also not counting Ledbetter in that because Ledbetter had already been played and that kind of feels like sort of more of a a statement thing rather than a set list creation thing so it was definitely needed this late in the set in this spot but ed says all right, we're done. One more song, at least one more of our songs. We picked one you know so we can sing this together. Now, it's the rare moment that Jeremy closes out a set, but it almost felt like I was expecting a performance that had this big wave of energy that had one of those speedy versions of Jeremy where the band is creating all this momentum and the crowd is you could see them like jumping on their feet and breaking a sweat to this. But I think it also goes into how many songs that were played on this night. I don't know if they had it in them to do that kind of version in this spot. I think that they were just trying to pace themselves out a little bit to get through the last five or six songs that they had. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, you're starting to see that fatigue a little bit. The crowd, I think, is is keeping them going at this point. That's a long night of songs to play. They're going to call for help very quickly. Exactly, yeah. You can't fault them for any of it. I think it's just one of those things that's like you expect a big Jeremy to be the big moment to close you out and like a big memorable one. It just didn't quite end up that way. But look, can't complain. The crowd is very, very good on it. So yeah, it's going to be not technically last of the big songs that are played. And then we're going to get into all of these covers that come in in this second encore here. But before we start those, we start with Ark. And as was mentioned in Dave's story before and the statistics that he gave us, this is the second to last version of Ark. It is the last U.S. version of Ark, as they would do the last one in Mexico City. But it is a little weird that it's not on the bootleg 
because you don't necessarily get a sense of this set and this part of the set having that somber tone. You know what I mean? Ed kind of mentions in a speech right afterwards, he kind of says, Oh, I'm the only one out here at one point. And I was yeah, the trying crowd's to doing the Eddie, Eddie. Right. Yeah. And I was trying to think, cause you know, looking at what I had in Spotify, cause that's, I was listening to Spotify when I was doing this, I had totally forgotten about Ark. And I thought like, Oh, well, is he going to do an acoustic version of miracles? And I, I, I guess I, I knew he wasn't going to, but it just, that's what went through my mind. And it would be really interesting to see how Ark would have fit within what they were doing here. And it seems like live, it would have been that emotional moment that kind of brought energy out of the crowd enough to get into a bunch of big time covers. It's too bad that we don't have more audience recordings of this. But when this comes up, I've been doing a thing where I'll... Like kind of stop listening to the bootleg. I think there are versions of Ark on YouTube from there's a really good one from Ned Solo show you can pull up. So I'll go and like listen to that and kind of get in the mood of it a little bit and kind of see how it fits in the set. And it's not the real thing because it's not the same version, but it gives you a little sense of what the mood is like and how things progress from there on. And yeah, it's such a 180 from anything else that they do. Obviously, they kept it off the boots out of respect for the victims of Roskilde, but. Yeah, it's such a left turn from what they do that it almost like it doesn't really fit anywhere. But putting it here, I think, is is a weird choice. I would have almost like maybe opened with it or done something else. But here you're kind of like you're getting to the end of this thing. After this, it's going to be full on party mode and celebration mode. And it's kind of weird to have a song like that here. But again, the last one off a ride act or finishing off the ride act album. And this is where it is. All right, well, look, Ed is being serenaded by the Eddie Chance, and Ed says, we talked about pacing ourselves. I think you have more stamina than we do, and we applaud you for that. We got a few interesting things and some covers now. In order to do this, we're going to aggravate some people that live nearby, and we're never going to play this place again. They would go on to play it two more times in 2008, where I believe they kept mentioning, oh, the trailer, the trailer, the trailer, so... Yeah, it, it is a theme for this place. It's not a deliberate act of disrespect, but we're trying to finish the set list and the songs that we're set out to do. Looks like the next time we'll see you will be in the Fleet Center. That would be the show that happened the next year in 2004. I will say this, it'll never be the Garden or the Orpheum Theater for that matter. Here's a song by the Ramones. Now, did you like how this was put together and orchestrated? Because you got four covers in a row. It's meant to be like sort of the fun, let your hair down kind of moments here, but it also just doesn't feel like you generated the same kind of excitement that the night had with I Believe in Miracles and Know Your Rights. I thought those two were a little out of place in a way, and maybe like some fans were kind of thinking like, oh, well, we just had all these originals, now we're just getting a bunch of covers. Like, if they were kind of interspliced with some other original songs, do you think it would have been better? Like, I have no problems with yeah. Fortunate Son and, and Rockin' in the Free World at all. I thought that those were fun because yeah. of Slater Kenny's involvement, but, like, yeah. something just didn't sit well with me with, with Miracles and Know Your Rights. They're not two of, I'll say, the better covers that they do. They're not more memorable ones. 
Yeah, I don't have a problem with it because at this point you've gotten so much and you're at the end and like everything after this is just icing on the cake. It's just gravy. They're still playing. You feel like you've been there for a week probably knowing some of those people that have been to all three shows. You've gotten all this stuff. You're just full of Pearl Jam and like just whatever they want to do. I think like you can tell on stage it's just full celebration mode, full party mode. On paper, yeah, maybe it doesn't translate very well. You look at this and you're like, man, why wouldn't they save Alive? Or why wouldn't they save something else for the end? But it's been a marathon. At the end of the marathon, you just keep on going till the end, until you cross the line. And that's what they're doing here. I guess so. But I think looking back towards the other shows, it was just Baba and Yellow Ledbetter in that second encore. I believe the first show was soon forget bush leaguer and fuck it up yeah so those encores due to the curfew mostly they were shortened and i'm wondering like they know they're up against a curfew but they're still going to jam all these songs in and granted i think they got the permission or at least before one of these songs they, they shout out a kid that was from the local trailer park according to five horizons they had to pay 7500 bucks for going past the curfew yeah, for that, that's chump change, but it still like just felt like maybe it didn't have to. I don't know how much it would have mattered, but like I don't know. Yeah, if, they, know, just if they did if they didn't do miracles and know your rights, would have missed them that much? Probably not. No. Yeah. It would have been forty three instead of forty five, which is still tremendous, but I don't know. I I, I Fortunate Son and Rockin' in the Free World to me felt like moments yeah. because you're bringing Corin out, and Corin every time that she takes oh. on Fortunate Son, yeah. she's out for fucking blood. Her voice just oh, yeah, shrieks. Yeah, bring out, bring out Sleater Kenny right away. Like, just bring him right. out for miracles and know your rights. Just get the reinforcements on stage and have it be what it is. Yeah. Or you know what? To replace miracles and know your rights, why don't you do this? Because they were doing this a lot during the time, more in 2005. But I believe they did this in one of the Mexico City shows. Do Hunger Strike? Why not do Hunger Strike there? Because yeah, that, that at least gets your crowd excited and reinvigorated and it gets another big moment for the end. I just, it just wasn't there with those two, but yeah, I mean, look, it's really kind of funny when Slater Kenny comes out, especially during this era when they do the classic rock songs, because they're still a riot girl band at this time. Like they're slowly, like the woods would slowly turn them into more of like an arena rock Type yeah, I, don't, where, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call them like rock. They have, they have been rock girls since like 1997. They're not a classic rock band, for sure. Right. I think the thing I'm I'm trying to get at here is you don't equate them to songs that were played by Credence and Neil Young. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. No. So, hey, look, it was fun. Rocking feels like a really big moment because the band. I don't know. It seems like maybe they had some intention to come back and play one more, but it does invite the big party atmosphere out for that. And, you know, it's song number 97, 96, so they, they yeah, save it for this role. It feels like definitely the Sleater Kenny members were definitely taking over. The guitar sounds like it's being played differently. I think at this point, I can I can see Mike Stone or Jeff just standing off to the side, like just take over, just play. Yeah, they've, they've earned it. They've earned it. That's 44 or 45 is enough for them, you know? But, hey, look, those moments are great. And again, like I mentioned, Ed shouts out to Doug, who was a local kid that seemed to be part of the trailer park that was located nearby. But now you're going to get into some shenanigans here. Ed thanks Boston for never leaving. Asked for one more. There's one more we haven't done. 
and then we hear a little feedback, and it says, yep, that's the one. Yeah, we played this in Birmingham, Alabama on this tour. If you'd like to hear it, we'd love to play it for you. This was, could have been so much better. Like, it was almost the same chord as all. And I will never get over this. Like, look, the band is obviously huge fans of the Descendants, or just fans of the Descendants. I know that Jeff is. And Ed. Self-pollution played Silly Girl. Yeah, That's right. Yeah, going back to self-pollution. They had that right in front of them. They could have done it. And it's basically... All they had to do instead of going bleh was go and then they do it again yeah, yeah. before getting into lead better and that one could have been all no all and they didn't do it too much of a deep cut for people also I, I think you really need to practice that one you need mm-hmm. to get that that chord down and yeah it's it's yeah. this this tough it's real yeah. tough descendants wrote a real wizardish punk rock song when they wrote that but yeah you call that the one note whatever you want to call it it is joking around once they come back out he's saying we're trying to play every song we did on this tour and we actually did play that one so they do the one note thing again and it gets booed people don't like it people were just like what the fuck is this because nobody listened to that birmingham show so nobody knows the joke that came out of that but People are like, no, we want an actual song. Don't fuck with us. You really think that that's going to end your show, guys? Come on. Yeah, I think, you know, the story is that Rockin' in the Free World is supposed to end it. Then the one note is like, okay, go home. We're done. And then nobody left. Who would blame them? That's not the best way to end classic shows like this. But I think they they had to have known. They had to have known. It's like, okay, well... If we're given this one last one, then we can do one more here. So, of course, now with the last song of the whole entire series of the whole three nights, you're going back to Yellow Ledbetter. The minute that Mike strums it on the guitar, it gets another massive reaction, just like it did for night two. just knew they couldn't finish it without doing it you know like it's that song it had become that song while people today will kind of joke around oh well we want some other closers that everybody knows that this is the one ed is funny on this he kind of says i don't have to ever play this outdoor place again and he kind of gets the boxer bag line in there and crowd is just very juiced up like they're taking this all in they especially the guys i'm sure that have been to all three nights are probably looking at this like wow we are witnessing the last moment of all of it and just what a way to finish it out yep there was no other way it could end and we get mike spotlighted at the end again of course 
So then we get a tag that we had never gotten before, that we'll never get again since. Well, it's a tag from Boston. What else is he going to do? Of course, it's more than a feeling. So we get a couple seconds of that. It's a nice little pop from the crowd. And then they all wave goodnight to a very, very special series of shows that happened up in Massachusetts, up near Boston. So there it is, you guys. We just finished all 97 of those songs. How you feeling after that? I, I feel pretty good. It feels like we've we've done something special, you know? Yeah, I'm tired. I feel like I just played 45 songs. I'm actually tired because I had like a two and a half hour car ride today, but I guess a two and a half hour episode would go up there to being tired as well. But yeah, what can you say that hasn't been said already? I think the only other thing that we can do at this point is to just kind of go back on some of these from this show and just kind of reminisce on what were the top moments from this. So go first and let everybody know what you take away. Yeah, this stuff. My number three is going to be Tremor Christ. My number two is of the girl. Let's say of the girl, number two, and then number one is all or none. Very nice. Yeah, I'm having a tough time. Like, I want to add something in from the main set encores, but I think all three of my moments are acoustic set moments. I am going to go number three. I really love this version of Off He Goes. I know that's not one of like the main favorites from that set, but I felt something really good out of that version. I'm going to say my number two is All or None, and then my number one is going to be Footsteps. I think that is my full takeaway from this show, is how important and how amazing that version of Footsteps is. So, there we have that. I don't think this will be difficult, so... Let's all wrap it together and put it in where it belongs. Yeah, so it's interesting because the main set, if you will, everything from Can't Keep On, I don't think that's a 10 out of 10 show if it were on its own. I think there's issues. I mean, obviously, you're dealing with leftovers from night one and night two, and obviously they had saved some things. But the acoustic set being part of it is just one of the coolest things that they've ever done and that more than makes up for the sometimes lacking quality of the main set and the second encore we talked about is a little hit and miss but you can't give this anything other than a 10 i'm I, you know, joked about you know docking points for the atlanta thing but the acoustic set really makes up for anything else lacking from the show it's a 10 out of 10 yeah you know we brought up earlier in the show that this is very similar in ways to that final night at the spectrum and I think the similarities kind of draw in from that they knew that they were going to play a lot of songs, that they knew they were going to spend a lot of time playing, and that it was kind of a sprint to get all of them in there. And I think that it's just sort of a, a novelty to put together a show like this. Like, you can't have a 40-plus song show and it not be a novelty. So, like, there is going to be moments where it does feel a little rushed. It does feel a little sort of out of sync in in spots. Ed had a couple rough moments here and there. But it's all about the what and not the how 
sometimes. And again, as you mentioned for the acoustic set, like the acoustic set on its own is more than deserving of a 10 for this show. And I think it is a lot based off of just the experience and what the show has meant over time and, and the what that they did instead of the how. I agree with you. I don't think the main set on its own would have held up as a legendary show in any other circumstance, but because of what this is and because of what this whole entire run in Mansfield was, this show is easily a 10. It's a top 10 show of all time of theirs. And that's pretty much that. That's as easy of a 10 as we're going to get in this whole entire year. Introduce yourself to the second Hall of Fame episode from the class of 2023. Get the yes, it's ready. in July. Yep, the plaque is will be sent out to, I don't know, one of those trailer parks, I suppose. I suppose they can get the honor of it. But that was uh, a good time. That was a good time, and glad that we were able to bring all that to you guys. It was a very important story to tell altogether. And just as important as the story of the sets and the story of the songs were, it was important to get your side of the story as well, because that put a whole introspective that we probably would have never had on this show. And it taught us a whole lot about what this stretch was like. And yeah, like I said, it's one of the most important things that have ever happened in this piece of Pearl Jam history. So, all right, well... With that being said, next week is not going to be a 2003 show. We are not going to do another 2003 show for the rest of the year, as a matter of fact. We did our 10, and that was going to be the honor and tribute to that. And as we go on in the latter months, the whole month of August will basically be dedicated to 1998. And then once we get into October, November, we'll start getting into more 1993 shows and start getting into more... 2013 shows that are celebrating anniversaries as well but next week we're actually speaking of 2013 we are going to celebrate an anniversary of a show that a lot of people might not have on their radar because it's three days before the wrigley show we're going to cover london ontario from 2013 10-year anniversary of that and john we will be seeing you the week afterwards once we're done with that, so you'll be off next week doing Godzilla stuff, right? Yep, going to be in Chicago, not for a Pearl Jam show, but for something else. You will be dearly missed. And we'll be joined by hallucinogenic recipe co-host Patrick Bogle, who was at that show. And I think we'll also be joined by Tim Fortescue as well, who made the request for this one. So, yeah, train keeps moving. More episodes and soon as you know it we will be at september where we'll actually be in chicago we'll actually be in fort worth so can't wait for all that to happen and just get to more shows and more classic moments of pearl jam as this thing goes along so if you like what you heard today if you like what you heard in the last two episodes please make sure you are subscribed on apple Podcasts, on spotify wherever you decide to listen to your podcast and if you are on either of those platforms please feel free to give us a five-star rating if we have earned such ratings and also on apple you can let the people know what you think about us and the job that we are doing and leave us a comment 
people can just look at the comment and be like, okay, well, look, I'm looking for a Pearl Jam podcast, and this is going to fit my need to either learn more about live shows or to get my fix of what bootlegs I might need to listen to. So a lot of that going on, a lot of that happening, and then hopefully the goal, just spread it word of mouth. So thank you all for listening in this week. And listening in the last two weeks has been a blast. And next week, why don't you tune in again for London, Ontario? So, all right, this may be the end. We're here, but not for much longer. And although we may be parting ways, miss you already, miss you always. Thinking to myself, if we ever did a set list of episodes that amounted to 97 of them, how much would we have to interpret in? Oh, I'm not doing that math right now. It's been a two and a half hour show. I think I'm going to go to sleep. But when I wake up, it will be time to do London, Ontario next week. So we'll see you then. Experiment with success. Boston. Thank you for everything. Thank you for two nights, three nights. Thank you for two guys. Thank you for one great feeling. Thanks for the experiment. Peace.